بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين اللهم لا سهل إلا ما جعلته سهلا وأنت تجل الحزن إذا شئ سهلا اللهم أعنا على ذكرك وشكرك وحسن عبادتك يا رب الكريم السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته It's uh, good to see you guys again good to be back بارك الله فيك وجزاكم الله خير um, I wanted to apologize as well in person for last week. Um, we tried to do the, um, we tried to arrange the lesson last week uh, from Medina to Munawwara, uh, but it was literally impossible. It just literally became impossible. Groups were leaving, we were leaving, a flight was at the same night, blah, blah, and it, and um, the noise in the, um, in the Saha, in the courtyard, for yeah, courtyard uh, was too noisy, etc., etc. So we missed out. But khair, uh, first time in five years. First time. It's okay to be honest. Since that, no. Did you get what? <laughs> Unbelievable. I've just been accused of eating al at that time. <laughs> I didn't get al-bayk I didn't get any joy I didn't get no fun It was horrible missing the lesson I felt so bad It ruined my three days before It ruined my six days afterwards I Without thinking that all I was doing was just On my jollies I was, Well I was I, I'm not gonna lie. Afterwards I mean I was There's no doubt about it that Afterwards there was a bit of jollies going on But not before then though Not on a day bro It was hard work Well like yeah. So anyway, and anyway, to be honest, to be honest, I had a quick review of the lesson before that from Mecca, and to be honest, that was worth three lessons by itself. <laughs> I was being as as objective as I possibly could be. I watched it again. I thought, Mashallah, is very good content. And then at the end, when I said. Right, that's enough. Suddenly, I, yeah, and I was like watching myself. It was like an out-of-body experience. I was lo- looking, and suddenly I all be- I went all weird, and I said, "Let me do you guys a favor, or something like that." That's what I did, and then I reached across, I picked up the camera, and I gave them a guided tour of the haram, virtual. a virtual tour, from up top, <laughs> five ten minutes, showing the people this is the hotel, this is the tawhid. This is how much it costs to stay here. This is what we're gonna. This is what happens when we knock the palace down. This is a helipad. This is Safa Marwa new part. I was giving all my secrets away. I was giving away all these tips and all this stuff. I couldn't believe it was me actually being so nice. So that's definitely going to be worth a lesson anyway. We haven't really missed anything. Huh? Yeah, and, and, and to be honest when you think about the amount of content that was in that lesson it was worth two lessons content so I don't feel too bad to be honest uh, did you make I made dua for all the people as well as a compensation because I felt a, bit, a little bit a little bit bad tiny I made dua for all of you Allahumma fil muslimin wa muslimat not even muslimat not even no, because that requires some extra gift or something. That that's a that's an upgrade. That's an upgrade. No, I had to pay for my upgrade. So I was going to upgrade you, lot. Yeah, and if a Muslim into mu'minin, what do you think this is? Ain't charity, bro. 
you got to earn your position. What do you think this is? Right, okay. So, um, so anyway. Uh, so what happened when you missed that day this week? What happened? Well, really, yeah? I to remind you. Oh, right, right, right. Well, that's also true. I had a horrible time getting home. And Shazad is trying to make out that maybe this is what happens when you miss the LP. Try it again, we'll find out. Try. <laughs> I'm not, you know what? If that's what happens, it took me two days to get home, by the way. Two days to get home because of this nonsense rubbish yani in Istanbul. Were you PIA? <laughs> I felt like I was traveling PIA, I tell you that much. The airport felt like it was PIA. But anyway, alhamdulillah. Uh, but if that's what happens if you miss a lesson, then we will, I promise not to miss another lesson ever again. I'm just talking about the harming that's not being available in there. <laughs> oh, right. Right, no, right. Exactly. See, look where Shazad's mind is. No. Look where our mind is. And he's talking about ice cream. SubhanAllah. <laughs> SubhanAllah. We're talking about having the worst time ever, and his mind's obsessed with ice cream. Can we do a lesson today? Or, I mean, do you have any intention I for a lesson? I'm going to break this week of love. Achatika. Achatika. Right, okay. So... Um, uh, I should say to you guys that um, obviously I was away on Umrah. May um, Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept it from all the people who were there. Ujiva also was there, mashallah. And quite a few people from uh, the UK, but the majority were from abroad. Um, it's a, it's a, a very recommended program if you've got the monies, because it's not cheap. Okay, it was like two grand odd. It was called the Blessed Voyage, meaning in like the December one. But it was some serious some serious stuff hooked up I see some things I'm a basic kind of guy I'm a Manji Bisra guy no no wait wait a minute I'm a Manji Bisra guy am I a Manji Bisra guy or not am I a Manji Bisra guy no I'm, I'm, a, I'm a diva guess when the Hussains are just labeled me as a diva khalas job done I'm a Manji Bisra guy, keep it simple. My Umrah in April is a simple one. It's like 12, 1300 quid, basic kiani. Even the hotel is not too bad, but I will try and find a night where we can sleep outside so that you feel the Manji Bisra style, yeah? But this one, this was not Manji Bisra package, bro. We kept getting hooked up after hooked up, best hotels, best rooms, haram everywhere, and people just coming and doing amazing Ajib things. And we had... Dinners in Arafah. Can you believe oh, that? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. He's dying, crying, like this, that. And, in, and we, so we were there, dinner. waiters were bringing yani, 20 dishes of French cuisine and this, that, whatever. <laughs> and there was like, thing, just wait one second. Just wait one second. I know that you're just waiting to explode. Just yeah. wait one second. <laughs> So then, and waiters, and, and, you know, like foods, and this and that. That was obviously some crazy hookup, because who on earth, Yanni, is able to go to Arafah and say, we're going to turn it into an open buffet? But it was there at Jabal Rahman and everything. I wanted to say for the record, I didn't go. Okay? The entire group went, but I didn't go. Is it true, Jibadah, that I didn't go? You should I told you to go. I told you to go. I said to you, I said, take all the entourage as well. I said, I'm worth 10 places by myself. Take all your 10 boys and girls and your mum and dad and I don't know how many people you took, mashallah, tomorrow, take them all. So back to your point. See, your, your point is redundant. 
I didn't. I know you was yeah. launch attack. Yani, what kind of what kind of you think? We didn't get taken to Arafah dinner because Astaghfirullah, that's true. We were given breakfast that had tinned pineapple. The tinned pineapple was not a problem. The tinned hummus was a problem though. Tinned sweet tinned sweet corn. How does the sweet corn come? What kind of pack out question is that? Sweet corn is better come tinned. How is you going to give sweet corn? Yeah, but 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 hummus I I get. I don't know what happened in Hajj package, but but on some of the mornings, some of the mornings or every morning, I'm not gonna lie. I didn't I, I didn't touch a single one, but we were given hummus in in tins. Yeah, I think you had to open the tin. And there's no spoon there to spoon it out, so the croissant's got to go. That's Munji Bisra package, you see? Croissant with hummus. Is that like haram, haram? <laughs> yes. We've got a French guy here. Yeah, I mean, literally took it personally that I mentioned croissant and, and hummus. Oh my God, I'm sorry. Well, like, it was, it was, it was a bit of a hard call. I'm learning that there's certain things you can't. You know, it's like, it's like uh, having naan and rice. What's wrong with that? Some pack If you do that at the table, they kick you out. Not a single pack in his right mind would ever. Every single pack household puts rice on, and they always have a few naan. How about that? Eating, no, 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 eating the the rice with the naan. Yeah. Yes. It's more than standard. 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 Yeah. You've been seeing the whole kind of gora pack flex. You know what I mean? Right. But proper pack pack behavior, we do that kind of stuff, yara. Yeah, listen, the way it is is that the reasoning behind it, the logic behind it, everyone who's waiting for a lesson, just forget about the lesson. Yeah. <laughs> the idea behind it is that if you got rice and naan, naan is special, and not, you're not going to waste the naan. So if you don't have a good salan or good tarkari, yeah, as we call it, tarkari, you guys use that? Yeah, yeah good karai kind of. If you don't, then you're going to just knock it out with the rice. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. We're manji bisra people, we're simple people, yeah. But no croissant. No, no, no. no. I, I, I felt bad about the whole croissant hummus thing. I'm not going to lie. I felt bad. Right. Oh, well, that's giving me really, really, like, big evil daggers, Yani. So, okay. Let's have a lesson for his sake. Um, Shaz, Yara, what's happening with the notes? That's the one. Okay, bring it down. So, we did uh, last week... And we started the aura, and actually, subhanAllah, we did a whole uh, uh, paragraph. So the only thing that we didn't do then is that last sentence there, which is what we're going to cover today. The entire body of a free woman is aura except for her face. Okay? The entire body of a free woman is aura except for her face. Okay, so uh, let's just quickly remind ourselves um, uh, of what we covered in that last lesson because it was a big lesson okay minus all the background and Mecca and this and that but it was an important lesson because it introduced the chapter and you guys know by now that the first lesson in a chapter is always the most important because the theory comes down the ideas the social use of the concept and I went to a lot of detail yeah oh no no did we do one before that oh we did okay so that was a complete waste of a whole paragraph wasn't it right so that's two lessons we covered on it Anyway, Al-Muhim is that aura, as we said, is things that are not to be shown in public and they, they differed over that. One of the most important lessons that we learned is that we must differentiate between the aura of the nazar and the aura of salah. 
So it's two different concepts entirely, what one covers in the prayer and what one covers outside. I was thinking about this earlier on today. Uh, let me put it out to you. Which is covered more? In prayer or outside? So we'll say in for prayer and outside meaning day-to-day normal life. Okay? So what do you think? In prayer is what? More. More. More covered. In prayer. Across the board? Okay, so for men and women? Except women. Except women. For women it's less in prayer. So for women, it's less in prayer. Does it depend on the more in terms of layers or more in terms of skin showing? Uh, no, no. When I say more, I'm talking about covering more. So okay. Women so women less in prayer than in the salah it will be outside. Will be less. In the will be less. For men. For men, because it's a minimum uh, area you need to cover to attend the salah. Rather than just going out, for example, that's a maximum cover. So, already we're getting kind of, you know, uh, people starting to kind of put exceptions in. But I haven't heard enough exceptions. I haven't heard any accuracy in the answers. So, so far we heard for women, less in the prayer than outside of the prayer. And for men, we heard, what? Less as well. Okay. I'm talking about... So that's another question. Is that obligation or nafad? Um, to be honest, I didn't think about that. But let's just say obligation. Let's say obligatory. Actually, obligatory makes it a bit dry. Let's just say normative life. Okay, so sunnah uh, as such. Recommended what Islam requires from us. Are we talking in winter or in summer? <laughs> <laughs> so there's no issue of the weather affecting it, but there could be another issue, of course. So far, people have not given the correct major parameter, which isn't the weather. What's the major parameter? Players. No. Having uh, men and women in the. In uh, nearly, but that's not the major parameter. What's the major parameter in determining whether one is wearing less or more? In a prayer, inside or outside the home? Nearly, nearly, nearly. Sorry. Uh, so, so we were said for that point of view, we'll we'll just assume it to be nafal. So, yani easy going in terms of the rules of the prayer. If at home or in the. That's what we heard. That. No, not haram. No. Cultural, because you know. Not culture. No. 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 We it was very close when we had men and women and at home but no one really it, said it. No. Who? Correct. Okay. The real issue is who is that person that you are in front of. Okay? So I was thinking about this. Let's take a husband and a wife. Alright? So we're having a discussion of does a person wear more in the prayer or outside the prayer? That was my question. You should have responded and said, who are the people? Do you get it? Okay, that's how you've got to be thinking. Who are the people? So if I now say husband and wife, it's a game changer. Okay? So let's say husband and wife. Right? So a husband is praying, let's say a wife. Wife is praying in front of her husband. Yeah? More covered in the prayer, obligatorily wise or less? Much more. 
much more. A minute ago though, what did we say? Is a woman covered more in the prayer or less in, uh, uh, in the prayer compared to outside the prayer? She's covered less. So here's the irony that a woman who is praying in front of strangers is praying outside, for example, in front of other people, non-mahram people, she actually covers less in the prayer, according to the majority of scholars. There's always little differences that we're going to cover compared to how she prays outside. Whereas when she is the wife, or likewise the husband, they actually wear much more because in technically speaking, there is no aura between the husband and the wife. Is this working? Yeah, the mic is on. You know what, I think that battery is Yeah? That's like practically. It's gone, completely. Oh, really? It's not a battery, it's linked to main powers. Oh, I think it's still got a battery. Where's Bobby Jay gone? Yara, sort this out, Yara. So, um, uh, what was I saying? Yeah, our yeah, so, so, yeah. So there is no aura between the husband and the wife. Yeah? Outside of the prayer, there is no aura. If there's someone else involved in the room, then the aura then close has to go on. Yeah? So there's no aura. However, in the prayer, regardless of yani, you know, the fact that they're husband and wife, and we even said if she is alone, for example, she's wearing far, far, far more clothes. Likewise, the husband. The husband, no aura in front of his wife. However, in the prayer, he has to cover a minimum amount. Now, the minimum, minimum is a discussion that we started last week or the you know, last lesson. And it will now, then, we will develop it more. Now, let's talk about strangers. <coughs> so, strangers, are we happy? What about the man? Does he, pray, does he wear more in the prayer or outside the prayer? He wears more inside the prayer. Because the Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that when you are in that situation, uh, all children of Adam, take every zina every time you pray. And the kulla masjid, yeah? Every time you pray. That phrase has not come down and been narrated so strongly for normative life as it has been for the prayer. Because the prayer, as we discussed before, is a presentation to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whereas outside of the prayer, it is just to normative people. And there has to be a difference. You know, Sheikh Muhammad Mukhtar Shankiti, okay, uh, I mean, I, we've discussed this before anyway, but people who pray in their pajamas, I think we discussed that a couple of weeks back, right? Okay. Sheikh said that, you know, like this kind of style uh, uh, thinking, cut sleeve, uh, this kind of cut sleeve, he goes, unacceptable to pray like this. Unacceptable. Now, I think that him being accurate, what he means, you know some of the Arabs, what they do is that they actually sleep in these. Okay? Um, yeah. Some of the Arabs, as part of their culture, they sleep in these. Okay? Whereas us packs who wear them, we don't sleep in them, do we, generally? We kind of wear them around the house for easygoing kind of, you know. I noticed that the more that I lived with Arabs, they actually sleep in them. Uh, more than certainly other cultures, and I think that's his point. Um, uh, and I think that I think that's important an important distinction because when you hear scholars criticize that, I think what they're actually criticizing is laziness, smell, creased, that kind of thing of an appearance, not necessarily the style of a particular clothing. 
okay? And we're going to be obviously talking about that a bit more today. So you see, I just want you to understand that there is an interesting dynamic. So for the woman, she's actually wearing less when she's in front of other people in the prayer as, as opposed to outside the prayer, okay? Outside the prayer, the scholars are very, very conservative when it comes to a female's clothing, right? And then when it comes to the man, in actual fact, technically speaking, he wears more inside the prayer than he does outside. Even though, as the question was mentioned, obligatory and not obligatory, what's the bare minimum? The bare minimum could literally be a prayer discovering from the navel to the knee. Okay? Now, I just want to just also give you guys a reminder, and I did mention this in closing last week, is that the... Uh, when it comes to the navel to the knee, the majority of the scholars did not consider the navel and the knee to be included in that. So what they meant is between the navel and the knee. So therefore, that which is under the navel up until the edge of the knee. Okay? And there were, and I discussed that there were three different opinions on this matter. And I said that in practice, of course, one takes the safer position and tries to ensure that covers the actual navel and the knee. But there is important value to this kind of knowledge. Because if you know that there is a difference of opinion and you know that the actual correct position is that both are not fully included, then when a person does, for example, have, you know, three-quarter lengths or Bermuda shorts and it rides up a bit, you know, when you're in Ruku or something like that, you know the prayer is not invalidated. Yes? So there's a difference between knowing something and using that information as opposed to just kind of assuming it as a as a as a, 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 a set position. So what are we doing? So all of the free woman, okay, is aura except for her face. This is the humbly position only and it is in salah only. Okay? This is referring to the salah. I say it's a humbly position and not the position of Imam Ahmed clearly because we have another narration from Imam Ahmed which would indicate a little bit of flexibility in this matter when it comes to her feet. Let's discuss that. So, Sheikh Uthameen, he says, right at the bottom of page 160, he says, so it is obligatory for the woman to cover her entire body except for face, but there is no clear evidence for this issue. No clear evidence for this issue. Walihada. And it is for that reason that Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala said that the free woman, and I'm just going to say woman from now on because that sounds so dodgy saying free woman, yeah? So the woman, she is all awra except that which is yani, displayed in her home, which she, he defines as her face, her hands, and her two feet, Okay? So her hands, her feet, and her face. These three are not awra. And there's only one other scholar that agreed with this position from the four imams. Who is that? Anyone know? Abu Hanifa. Good. Yeah, we did that in Fiqh Salah. This is the position of Imam Abu Hanifa as well. One of the very famous issues. The majority of the scholars, they consider that the feet of the woman must be covered in the prayer, which is why they obligate the wearing of socks or long kind of shirts, etc., etc. When we say a shirt, a dir, okay, we're referring to basically a long thobe or a long jilbab. And when we're talking about women, remember there's a big difference between the, the thobe of the male and the female, okay? So even though the dress style is the same in that it's a single opening, okay, and that's important, 
we would call that of the woman uh, burqa or, or, or jilbab or what other phrases do we use? Abaya. Okay, abaya. Uh, these are also uh, phrases which are used in some cultures for the male version as well. Okay. The difference, of course, is what I mentioned to you when, uh, when I was here last, a couple of weeks back, is that the concept of isbal or the musbil is the one who lowers their thobe out of arrogance because they don't like it uh, short and it indicates yani, some kind of... Uh, for the people who wear long thobes, a short one indicates everything undesirable about clothes. For some really, really sick people, it's a sign of religiosity that they don't want to be associated with. And for other people, it's a sign of poorness or it's not a sign of wealth, whereas a long flowing thobe is. And we said that before, that more and more cloth used is an indication of wealth anyway. Now, what did I say? I said to you that I believe that the hadith which prohibit a person, a male, from leaving the thobe uh, underneath the ankles... I believe that that's only specific to a thobe, like this, that which has one opening, okay? But that which is two legs, i.e. a trouser, it does not apply, in my opinion. However, even with the wearing of trousers or a thobe, there is an understanding that there is a limit, regardless of whether it's the shari limit or just a normal limit. Whereas for a female, there is no limit. In actual fact, the longer that it is, the better that it is. And the Prophet ﷺ was asked about this by some of the female companions that this is a problem because uh, we're basically cleaning the street. You're walking along and it's just being dragged along. Yep, and you see it all become dusty. And that is when the Prophet ﷺ, he indicated that for every step that makes that dirty, the next step, the next step then makes it pure. So that continuous yani being rubbed across the floor, whenever it goes over a dirty part, it's going over enough dust and dirt and turab to purify it as well. Meaning it's the normative kind of reality of someone just going outside and praying. So this idea then of the female jilbab uh, 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 or abaya is that it's meant to be super long and super satr or sabir, yani, uh, uh Flowing and excessive, and so on. Yes. Yes. For normal clothing. No, oh, you mean like? So the train, the train of a wedding dress. Does the word train get applied outside of a wedding dress? If it's a long. Meaning, does a person normally ever wear a dress no. that that its long flowing extra is called a train unless it's a wedding dress? In an evening gown and in a formal kind of thing, yeah, you probably might might have that phrase. So the idea is is that this is permissible, of course, to wear, and this is the kind of idea to, that when it comes, obviously the train where people are holding it and all this kind of nonsense, I mean, that's not right. That's a whole level of takalluf and israf and extravagance, which is not part of our sharia. But yani, the idea is that it's overflowing. And we're going to be looking at one very famous narration, which is the narration of Um Salama, uh, radiallahu ta'ala anha. Okay, but we'll come to that in a second. Anyway, so what did he say, Shaykh al-Islam? He said, وَقَالَ إِنَّ النِّسَافِ أَحْدَ الرَّسُولِ اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ الصَّلَاةُ وَالسَّلَامُ كنا في البيوت يلبسنا القمص وليس لكل امرأة ثوبان. That 
at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the women, okay, in their homes, they used to wear uh, shirts and they didn't used to have two garments. Again, we go back to this point of remembering context in all hadith and in all seerah. If you don't understand the context at that time, it becomes very confusing. So we're talking utter abject poverty. People did not have the luxury of having multiple clothes. People did not even have more than one garment. Many people, as I've said many times before, didn't even have a garment that was a dedicated piece of clothing. What they had was a sheet. And we spoke about this, I think I mentioned it, I do cover this in Pure Pesa, that um, uh, sometimes the sheet that was what they would put on a very dusty floor to eat would be the only other sheet that they would have to wear as their clothing as well. So we know, for example, that when it came to uh, shrouds, people would uh, collect cloth in anticipation because they would really not believe that they would have a kefen, a shroud for their death, for the time of their death. Many were clothed and shrouded in their clothes. That's why in the fiqh of death, when we talk about that and we talk about the conditions, it's only a sunnah to have these three sheets of clothing. Many of the companions were just clothed in what they were wearing because they didn't and they weren't able to afford clothing to cover the companions uh, from family or from even donations. We know, for example, at the Battle of Uhud, after when the dead were then collected, there was not enough cloth even to uh, deal with the shuhada. And that's when the Prophet ﷺ said, bury them as they are, and so on and so forth. So I want you to understand this, this kind of reality. So when you're hearing this discussion about yani, only one cloth and you should pray in two, this is, we know the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, where she said that the menstruating women, they would literally remain at home in some kind of state of undress, whilst their clothes that they menstruated in, they washed and allowed to dry. And they would not then put that, they'd have to wait for it to dry before they put it on. Obviously in those heat kind of conditions, the drying used to happen quite quickly. But again, it indicates just how poor they were and how um, every hadith that you see about this is is taken in its context. That's why the Jumah thobe or an e thobe was literally a cloth that had not been worn before or an actual garment. And when we're talking about garments, we're just it's, they're mostly defined by their openings. So the idea of a stitched arm is a very rare idea. It's mostly shawls or what were they kind of called? Ponchos? Poncho style, yeah? Which just has literally two holes in it. Yeah, that's the, that's the concept you've got to remember. And so therefore, when it came to underwear, wasn't even known. And when it came to the cloth or the garment, it needed to be thick because they were not going to be able to have a second garment underneath. The idea then is, is that one thing goes on and it covers as much of the body as possible. Is that clear, everybody? And we've said this before, and we again focus on it again. The Prophet ﷺ, at his time, the women used to wear long shirts, really long shirts. So either it would be so long, like the kind of the Iranian one, or the, uh, the Afghani burqa, yeah? This kind of dress where literally it comes over the top, it acts as the hijab, as well as a khimar, as well as a jilbab, and covers the feet as well. It's super long. Qumus is the uh, plural of qamis, so even long shirts that uh, you might uh, see. 
ولهذا إذا أصاب دم الحيض الثوب غسلته وصلت فيه. And that's what is narrated as well uh, that whenever she would uh, a woman would be uh, the clothes would get the, the clothes would get yani, uh, uh, dirty by menstrual blood. They would wash it and they would pray in the same thobe. And the feet, okay, and the hands were not part of the aura. And based upon that, Sheikh Uthameen says that there is no actual evidence out there that my heart can feel comfortable with, okay, and that I feel really yani, confident about the issue. And it's nice to see Sheikh Uthameen talk like this. He says, I make taqlid of Ibn Taymiyyah. I make taqlid of Ibn Taymiyyah. فَأَنَا أُقَلِّدُ شَيْخُ الْإِسْلَامِ فِي هَذِهِ الْمَسْأَلَةِ That's also interesting to show to you that Sheikh Uthameen is not a mujtahid imam, like yani, the, the position that you know, scholars make it out to be, but it also shows you the necessity of taqlid. That sometimes when you don't know an issue, you make taqlid. I make taqlid in so many matters because I only feel comfortable in an issue once I've fully researched it. And until then, you either follow a fiqh council, a fiqh body, or your teacher. All right? That's basically what the obligation is upon every Muslim. So he says, what do I say then? I follow Ibn Taymiyyah and I say, He said, look, when a woman has a thobe, even if it's so long that it actually goes all over the floor, all over the, 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 the you know, overflows, what happens when she prays? Her feet will become uncovered. So because just, just because it's so long, it doesn't mean that the top of the feet will not yani, be seen when it's kind of you know, waving around, etc. Likewise, as we said before, when a woman goes into sajda, it doesn't matter how long the, the thobe is, you'll see the uh, soles of the feet. And that would therefore indicate that the feet themselves are not actually part of the aura. Because the Prophet ﷺ, when he was asked by Umm Salama, okay, in this very famous narration, as I said, narrated by Imam Tirmidhi, and let's have a little discussion about that, that is it acceptable to pray in a, uh, uh, a long qamis, a long dir'ah, which is like a long jilbab, and the Prophet ﷺ said, yes, as long as it reaches the uh, the yani uh, the top of the feet. Now, reaching the top of the feet tells you two things immediately. Number one, that that's not on the floor overflowing, so just that's just there. And when something is just there, then that means that it moves like this on top. Agreed? Yep. And number two, we know that when we go into sajda, then you'll see the soles of the feet. Now. The scholars that accepted this hadith, such as Ibn Taymiyyah and uh, Abu Hanifa and so many other scholars, they, uh, uh, sorry, and the minority of other scholars, they said this is a clear evidence. Others said that this hadith is definitely not authentic to the Prophet ﷺ. And they said that it's waqf, it is mawquf, meaning it's a statement of? It means a statement of a companion. Mawquf means a statement of a companion, i.e. Um Salama herself, that this was her own reasoning. Yeah, but the truth of the matter is, is that there is enough strength in this narration to consider it to be an authentic hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, and therefore this position is sound. You do need to know, though, that the majority of the scholars, they considered, as I said, that this hadith 
and every other hadith, they would indicate that actually no, the woman has to cover her feet just like she needs to cover outside. Let me make it clear. Ibn Taymiyyah obligated upon a woman to cover her feet outside the prayer. But not just that, also her face as well. You know, the concept of niqab is a very yani, a detailed discussion. and It's not the discussion of our class because that's outside of the prayer. Okay. However, the majority of the four imams... Okay, and the majority of the scholars considered the niqab to be obligatory upon young women. And those that therefore that grew older, lost sexuality and attractiveness, etc., etc., then it becomes less of an obligation. And, that, and this rule, they considered to be yani, literally subjective. And it's very difficult to, um, to, to, how can I say, to police something like that. Because what's the objective standard? What's the parameter? What's the issue of fitna? Um... Uh, there's an interesting discussion in the books of fiqh uh, from the scholars that obligated the covering of the face. They said, what about a woman who prays in public? One that we've already said that does not need to cover the face, right? What happens if she's in the presence of foreign men, meaning non-related men, non-mahram men? And the same discussion comes up when she's in ihram, right? In ihram, there's a very specific obligation for the woman not to cover her face, okay? So in these scenarios, what happens? And some scholars, they said, well, in this situation, if she fears fitna, because, you know, men are not very whatever, and a woman is, is a woman are not, men are not responsible, the women are attractive, whatever, then they can cover their face. So they can put their, put their niqab on during the prayer. Whereas other scholars said that, no, she has to maintain that position, and the sins upon the man, it's not her problem. Rather, yani, that's her moment where she's not meant to cover her face. It's a salah. And at that moment, a man should not be looking at her face in this kind of fashion. And so the burden is upon him as opposed to her. Which I think, to be honest, I think is a strong and a solid position. Okay? I think it's a strong and solid position. It's difficult for people to always be thinking about others. What kind of salah is that? You know, woman is trying to pray. And what she's instead thinking about is who's watching and who's looking and who's watching and who's looking and up. But you can't mess around with your, your niqab all day whilst you're praying. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so then uh, what the sheikh then therefore says is that so when she makes sajda, her feet are going to become apparent. Now, according to what the author has said, this thobe that a woman wears in prayer, it has to cover the bottom of her feet as well. Not just the top of her feet, but, uh, but the bottom of the feet, as well as her hands. And that only the face remains uncovered. And that face is, is and according to the scholars, the face is the face of wudu. So people need to understand that when we talk about the face, it's the face of wudu. Everything that you need to wash in wudu. So we know that that is from the, the top of the hairline, okay, or the bottom of the hairline, I should say rather, uh, to the edge of the ears, to the chin, Okay, this is the face. Underneath is not required, as we mentioned before. You can go and review that in the chapter of Wudu. As for, and then what the Sheikh then says, at the bottom of page 161, He goes that, you got to understand that when it comes to the prayer, you have a certain set of parameters that are judging the clothing. But outside of the prayer, or when it comes to looking upon one another, then it's a different set of parameters. It's sadd al fitna. 
It is closing the doors to fitna. So basically, I, I, you know, if we left it like that, it would be really nice and simple. Okay, we just want to close the doors to fitna. But the problem is, is that you know, one person's fitna is not another person's fitna, right? It's it becomes messy like that. And that's why then scholars give blanket rulings and say that upon women that are menstruating or before the menopause, for example, they all have to wear the niqab and so on and so forth. And it's a long discussion about that. So, See, here's the thing, right? He said that the scholars, including Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, they said the illa in these two realities is different. In salah, it's about beautifying yourself to the maximum best way possible for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's prayer for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and therefore it's not done with the face covered, etc., etc. Whereas for uh, a normative life, the illa behind clothing entirely for men and women is to reduce fitna. So we're going to have a little chat about, for example, the issue of the uh, aura for men uh, and what is the reality behind that? What, what governs the aura for men? And what, what is the reality in terms of clothing? So meaning that for both men, obviously we always focus upon women when it comes to dress. I don't know, it's just our obsession. But the truth of the matter is, is that back in the earlier societies, the male issue was probably a more kind of like, a, not relevant, but more kind of controversial. Everyone understood women very easily that, you know, they need to be covered and, you know, that's fine. But there was a major uh, 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 threats of homosexuality, okay, back in, uh, not just back in the day, but obviously now as well. But there was a very big focus on young boys, okay, and exactly how much they should cover or not. Okay, so this goes back. What I want to talk about now a little bit is the issue of the aura of the male being from the belly button or the navel to the knee. Is it the thigh? Is the thigh included or not? You'll be surprised to know that actually, uh, as Ibn Hazm said, the majority of the mutaqaddimin, meaning the early scholars, the early, early scholars, meaning the salaf, they only considered the private parts, okay, to be the actual aura. There's always been this discussion. Is it the private parts, the su'atihima, okay, the, the actual front and back, okay, or is it more than that? Um, there's so much discussion. There are a number of hadith that, that talk about the, for example, in al-fakhd aura. The Prophet ﷺ said that the fakhd, the, the, the thigh, is aura. That's been narrated from Ibn Abbas and from Ali radiallahu and, and from a number of companions. However, upon further study, every single narration that states that the aura, that the thigh is aura, is weak. Every single narration. So this is a very interesting point. Okay. The second, then the, the next point that would be then said, okay, al-fakhidu uh, aura, also narrated by Imam Tirmidhi, and it has. Uh, Abu Yahya al-Qattat and he is da'if and so on nearly every narration uh, virtually every narration is weak then the scholars that said that the aura is uh, the defy is not aura Ibn Hazm led that call he mentioned that from the salaf we know this is the clear opinion of Mamalik 
Okay, we know this is a narration from Ibn, uh, from Imam Ahmed as well. Okay, what was their evidence? Here's something interesting for you guys. In the Sahihain, in Bukhari and Muslim, we have a hadith where Anas radiallahu an was riding with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Okay, on his own, on his horse, as they were going to Khaybar. And Anas radiallahu an, he said, I saw the thigh of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and because I was very, very close, my leg touched the thigh of the Prophet sallallahu and he did not mention anything. There are a number of points there. The Prophet sallallahu is super aware of his body and the rulings concerning it. He did not cover his thigh. Number two, it is not permissible for anyone to touch the aura of another person. And so therefore, Anas touching the, the, the thigh of the Prophet sallallahu would not have been allowed if it was aura. Those guys, they responded and said Anas was still a young boy. We respond and say he was not as young as it wasn't when he was 10. This was later. So he was still old enough. Okay. However, we can leave that for debate. Another hadith which is interesting. This hadith is narrated is 145 in uh, the first chapter of Bukhari. We have another narration in Sahih Muslim. Hadith number 2401. Very interesting hadith narrated by Aisha radiallahu anha. The Prophet ﷺ is lying down in his room. Aisha states that he was lying and relaxing and his thigh was uncovered. His thigh was uncovered. Abu Bakr as-Siddiq knocked on the door and asked for permission to enter. He came in. The Prophet ﷺ did not move, carried on chatting. Then Sayyidina Umar knocked on the door. Can I come in? Come in and he the Prophet ﷺ did not move and carried on chatting. Then who came in? Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu an. What happened? The Prophet ﷺ, what happened? Someone? He, he got up very quickly and he covered his thigh. So he like straightened it out, whatever, and he covered his thigh. When they left, Aisha radiallahu anha said, can you yani, explain to me what happened? Why is it that when Abu Bakr, nothing happened, Umar, nothing happened, then when Uthman came in, you did that? He, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said, Should I not have haya from someone whom the angels have haya from? Yani, the angels are shy in front of Uthman and, and he can't even see them. Right? Think about that. He can't even see them and they feel shy because of the, yani, the character and the power of Sayyidina Uthman, alayhi salam. Um, he goes, should I not feel the same? Uh, so uh, what do we learn from that? That it's not obligatory, okay, according to this narration. Yes, the scholars that uh, uh, argued, they gave some, you know, ideas here and there and whatever. I want to say something to you that Sheikh Uthameen mentioned. Not very strong, but I do like what he said. And I heard this before from some of my teachers many years ago. And I kind of got to say that it resonates with me. There's no doubt to just assume the safer position and say that the thigh must always be covered for a male. Okay? But then I think it should be now considered with a wider, more kind of accurate response. Age is very important. Okay? Sheikh Uthameen mentions at the bottom of page 100 and... Um, well, not on 161, but he mentions... Uh, later at the bottom of 163 something very interesting he said that um, one of the big mistakes that people make and I want everyone to listen very carefully to this okay one of the big mistakes that people make is that they see other people according to their own eyes 
And that's a huge mistake. You must not be the judge of what you think is ethically right or attractively right. You must not be that person. You might be looking at a woman that you do not find at all attractive, but she's the most attractive woman in the world. You might look at a boy and see them like your son. A father can never normally see their son in a sexual light. But there are men out there and women, but men worse, of course, that do see children in this way, right? There are young boys that are put together that see each other in this way as well, okay? Especially young boys, especially beardless and so on. These, when people read it, they read it in a kind of like a, a jokey kind of way, or not a jokey, what's the word? Dismissive kind of way. They think that this is kind of, you know, the Arabian Nights, and this is naive. the... Uh? Naive. Na- yeah, naive, that's the word. Yeah, naive. Very naive. They think it's a different culture, whatever. But it's not a different culture at all. We have these sickos everywhere, and we need to understand that the mind and the heart gets changed in certain scenarios. And if you don't believe that, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself <laughs> told us about men who were literally desiring men. And this discussion about homosexuality is a very big one, okay? And, um, you know, obviously with the kind of pressures at the moment um, uh, that Muslims are under and Christians are under into not being able to present their beliefs, yani clearly otherwise being seen as extremist. So that's now another problem. People are not willing to discuss this openly. But there is another issue as well here. And that is that homosexuality, I don't think, is understood by the Muslim scholars properly either. I don't think they're to blame for that. But I want you to understand that, I mean, certainly when we were younger, when I think about 20 years ago when we would uh, be debating with either homosexuals or either atheists who don't accept Islam because of what they see as backward attitudes towards homosexuals, I used to remember that our, the majority of our arguments were either emotional, okay, so it's just like, you know, fun and joke and whatever, whatnot, playing upon male, you know, bravado and ego. Or they were very uh, just super confident in Islam, very dismissive of scientific opinion. So, of course, we would never, ever have entertained the idea that that genetic mutation could possibly lead to that. Right. There's that discussion out there that you are. I mean, this shows the, the, the nonsense of the discussion because it changes from generation to generation. So back in my generation, okay, say 20 years ago, it was seen as a mutation, which by definition means you are ill. And that was a scientific community's kind of idea, or some of them anyway. Then, of course, it became completely politically incorrect to say that this is an illness. So therefore, there was an idea that uh, the mutation either happens or... It's got nothing to do with mutation. It's to do with personal's, people's personal choice and they should be allowed to then you know, deal with it uh, and do what they want. Okay? What was our response or the Christian response or any kind of religious response? From the very beginning, it was always a case of that's nonsense. It can't be any kind of mutation because then it would mean that the blame is taken away from the person. And we know that this is a decision and a personal choice, life choice, and that people are going to take responsibility for it. 20 years later, my mind has definitely changed on the, on the idea. Um, my, my, my thinking has developed um, to where I believe that it could possibly be some... Uh, possibly, meaning that uh, I'm not willing to uh, dismiss it completely. There could be some research that could come out that could show that there could be some mutational form or whatever. Yeah? 
The reason I'm comfortable holding this position, which would, been, which would have been anathema 20 years ago or 10 years ago, is because my conclusion doesn't change. Meaning, so what? And if there is a genetic mutation or there is a whatever, you are still obligated to control your desires. A mutation would do what? Or an illness would do what? Or a life choice would do what? It would mean that you would desire X. Well, guess what? You know what? Tomorrow they could say that there is a mutation of a gene that wants basically people to, uh, uh, I don't know, that wants people to what? Um, m- m- well, that's, that's, that's extreme. Let's say uh, uh, have, have sexual relations with uh, women outside of marriage. Shock horror. No, that that's my point. Okay? They could, they could turn around tomorrow and say the reason why people have this desire to do it outside of marriage or to have affairs or one night stands or whatever is because there is a genetic mutation that creates a sexual overdrive that doesn't allow a person to be, you know, hyper-sexualization or whatever. Yeah? So we'd say the same thing to this guy or this girl, Right? would say that this is your test and you got to control yourself it's desires at the end of the day so i'm just saying that yani this discussion has moved on all right it doesn't now we don't need to restrict ourselves or worry about what the scientific community says it doesn't change anything it's like evolution it's like evolution people we were spending so many yani hours and days just trying to you know argue against the genetic yani reality or the scientific reality or whatever the truth of the matter is, is that we could accept evolution tomorrow. It really doesn't change much. But to say that humans are evolved from an animal, that's a whole different yani, point altogether and completely unacceptable because it is from our creed that we were created and that Adam was created. So I just want you to understand the benefit of this point I'm making that we don't need to run from science in any of this, the scenarios. Science is something which is right one day and right and wrong the next day, but they but we are not people who are afraid of the empirical method. That's the Christians who are, were terrified of that, not the Muslims. So even if they do prove and they find all the missing links to show that evolution is a reality between species, whatever, whatnot, or intra or interspecies, it does not change the fact that text has made it very very clear. Let alone the fact that there's no evidence that something could become a human. Okay. The fact is that humans were created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by his hand and, and that's the end of the story. So um, likewise with homosexuality, likewise with any kind of fitna that a person has. However, as a society, we are ob- obliged to respond to minimize that fitna whenever it occurs. That's why the Prophet ﷺ, he separates between boys and uh, anyone else, boys and boys, boys and girls, girls and girls, whoever, in their beds at the age of 10. Because at that age, the understanding is that people start to explore, they start to feel and touch others, and that is the time where then these kind of things can start to get out of control. It's also the idea why, as I explained in Protect This House, we encourage hijab on our girls at an age when it's not obligatory upon them. So that they can get used to the concept and the idea and they can start protecting themselves from the general relaxed nature of not wearing hijab, the easier reality of life without hijab. So I want you to go back to this point of boys as well. There are now scenarios where boys are kept in boarding school environments, madrasa environments going away and they do become a source of fitna. 
Saying all of this ties into the point of the thigh. If there is anyone that people are afraid of, or there are people, or we're living in a time where people are not to be trustworthy, the clothes get thrown on. Everything gets thrown on. Simple as that. Okay? We don't want to then see girls yani, wearing minimal clothing or boys wearing minimal clothing, etc., etc. If the society is a very, very bad one at a very, very time, bad time, like now, then we tell our brothers and our sisters to wear maximum clothing. Okay? And then likewise, we also need to be politically yani, astute as well. These are cultural factors that we just talked about and societal ones, but there are political ones as well. It might be that, for example, in a certain country at a certain time, to wear the black abaya or whatever is causing just too much of a problem. It, it sticks out too much and it causes too much of a risk, yani, you know, amongst Islamophobic yani, incidents and whatever, whatnot. So this is a time where we say, well, okay, black is a demure color which ticks all the boxes in terms of desexualizing the female body. But maybe in this culture, we will allow colorful type of clothing, which we do not consider to be yani, that which is flirtatious and so on and so forth. Or, for example, we might consider the uh, wisdom, for example, of if people are being, being charged and fined for wearing a niqab, then we say that it's permissible for you to remove the niqab, especially with the evidences that would suggest that the niqab is not obligatory. Okay? So there are certain things that, and parameters that you play with. We would never say to a woman, take off a hijab. That would be a regressive move, yani, beyond Islam and beyond wisdom and beyond politics. Likewise, we would not then say to, you know, in the aura of a young boy, whatever, something extreme as well. Now, I want to summarize a point that I think is interesting. I think that the thigh, I think that if you look at all evidences, you can actually come to a sensible scenario. That the thigh, because it's quite a large muscle and large area, you can see that what is closer to the private parts, i.e. the upper thigh, one should consider that to be like the ruling of the private parts. Whereas the bottom part of the thigh, which is a far more kind of closer to the knee and so on, then perhaps these are the, this is the part of the body that was uncovered in all of these various evidences. And that would make a lot of sense. It is difficult for us to imagine that the Prophet ﷺ, he exposes entire thigh, okay? Because the entire thigh really is right underneath the private parts. And that's unacceptable to think of like that. And the evidences and the wording doesn't indicate that either. So I think, personally speaking, that not only in the prayer, but outside the prayer as well, the thigh is not aura. And I believe that in more an accurate explanation, that this not aura belief should be applicable to the bottom part of the thigh, not the top part. Okay? And that would... And people often ask the issue about football. And I just want to just talk a little bit about that. Okay? I know we're moving outside of prayer, but this is probably one of the most kind of uh, common questions. Um, by definition, then, football would not be an issue because this would be the lower part of the thigh. Okay? Um, unless you're that plum, what's his name? Uh, Sanchez. Uh, Sanchez. Who for some flipping reason, <laughs> I don't know what the heck is wrong with that guy. Please explain to me, Abu What the hell does he... Yeah? Him and Ronaldo, they've got this yani, fetish of getting their shorts and pulling it up, yani, you know? Like Maradona, man. Yeah, Maradona used to do it as well, sah. Disgusting people, honestly, man. Wallahi, Sanchez looks such an idiot when he does it. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm just going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm full, full disclaimer, 
he is my fantasy uh, 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 captain, and uh, he's not been doing that bad. Okay, or is it, or am I? Am I rubbish at the moment? I think it was an error shape because uh, from the 80s, though, you, know, like, you see the highlights and stuff, they always just have like, yeah, short yeah, shorts. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. That, that, that was short that shorts. Was I'm not talking about short shorts. Pulling them. I'm talking about pulling them up. Huh? Doing <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically doing the self wedgie. Exactly. That's exactly. I don't know what's happening. One life's just disgraceful. But anyway. That's the uh, that's the point. I'm saying that that's unacceptable, but the normative scenario. However, at the same time, and this is very important. Remember, when you are watching football, the le- lesson that we just learned. I mean, the irony is, I don't think I've ever ever noticed ever the thigh, right? When I'm watching football, because you don't, yeah. And it's only it's only actually when you watch the old, as you said, the 80s and whatever, that you realize that goodness me. The shorts used to be so much shorter, and now they are literally up to the knee anyway. Okay, but this is the this is the point Sheikh's making, and I want to make that the ruling is not based upon you not noticing, because I don't, I never have noticed except bloody Sanchez, yeah, <laughs> because he tries his absolute best, Yanni, to show Yanni. You know what I'm saying? It's disgusting. You will never be able to now look at Alexis Sanchez ever again. Except that you have to turn your eyes away. Because I have to close my eyes every time I look at him. He just does that. He, and he walks around for ages. Then he pulls him down again. Then he lifts him up. This is disgusting. Okay? But no other player ever have I noticed. Right? Um, but the ruling is not based upon me noticing. Or my reaction to it. Okay? So certain men should be keeping aware of that. Women should definitely be very much aware of that. Um, it is an area of fitna. Okay? So keep that in mind. Alright, just to finish off then. Um... What does uh, and he mentions just just so uh, you know just to cover all the bases, Sheikh Uthameen on page one hundred and sixty-two. He goes, there is a narration from Imam Ahmed that the aura of the man is only the the, the private parts, okay, and that's narrated from Insaf, and uh, and he also said that uh, uh, that that's the that's the case whether in the prayer or outside the prayer, okay. So, like in Sheikh Islam. Uh, he refused that he goes that it must be, the the thighs must be covered okay um, the thighs must be covered in the prayer and he is very very strong upon that وَهَذَا الَّذِي ذَكَرَهُ هُوَ الْقَوْلَ الرَّاجِحِ الْمُتَعَيِّنِ وَلِهَذَا كَانَ الصُحَابَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ إِذَا كَانَتْ عَلَيْهِمْ أَزُرْ قَصِيرًا يَعْقِدُونَهَا عَلَى مَنَاكِبِهُمْ عَلَى مَنَاكِبِهِمْ حَتَّى لَا تَنْزِلْ I just want you to know that whenever you saw um, the companions, they were always trying to cover the majority of their body. Okay, so even though we know that the Prophet ﷺ said that don't any of you pray except that you put something over your shoulder. That's why when the when Jabir came and said to the Prophet ﷺ, "What do you think? I covered this two weeks ago of this." He said that if it's big, then cover the top part of your body, and if it's tight, then the bottom part. What does this narration mean? I hope you understood what it mean, It meant. It meant that if it's so big that it covers the, the entire part of your body, then you start by covering the entire part of your body and the bottom part. That's what it meant by wrap yourself around in it. But the idea is that if it is only small and you can't cover the rest of your body, then it's important to cover the bottom part. Do you get what I'm saying? So it's a priority game. The whole body gets covered. If you can't, then two shoulders. If not, then one shoulder. If not, then the entire body from the top down in one way. If not, and it all goes right down to the bottom, then it is technically possible to pray 
by just covering yourself in a big towel, navel to knee. And then, even then, Malik and Imam Ahmed and, whatever, and, and a few other narrations would indicate that even if some of the thigh was showing when you went to sajda or ruqwa, then that would still be a valid prayer as well. Okay? Um, and what else will we say? So, Sheikh says, so therefore, in principle, we should cover the thighs regardless because that is taking zina. No one would ever consider that to, uh, uh, not, no one would argue that to show the thigh is obviously not very maru'ah, it's not chivalrous, it's not respectable behavior. And we've got to have respect, yani, for our clothes, okay, and our bodies. Um... And I just finished with this statement from Sheikh Islam. He says, and it is haram to look at a young boy that one is fearful of fitna from. إِذَا تَمَتَّعَ الْإِنسَانُ بِالنَّظْرِ إِلَيْهِ أَوْ أَتَلَذُذُ Okay, especially if they feel some kind of يعني, desire. لِأَنَّ هَذَا شَرٌ This is a major evil. And how many of these kind of looks have fallen into the hearts of people? And, and, and led to catastrophe, as Imam Ahmed himself said in Al-Insaf. Okay? So I think we'll call it there because um, that was quite heavy. And I know people are tired. OBJ has knocked out at least twice. Abu Dhar knocked out about three times. But it's amazing to watch someone fall asleep when they're sitting. It's amazing. It's like... <laughs> This is brilliant. Right, questions, boys and girls? So the one time you discussed about the need, uh, the need to include or not. Yes. Top at, uh, just below the belly button, how below? So I think below the belly button basically means that it's a line and you can see the belly button. That's the point. It can be visible. It could be visible. Technically speaking, it could be visible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Please elaborate, Usman Sab. Like it. He said. He said. A statement of either a genius statement or a statement of experience. I don't know which one. He said that the belly buttons, different places on different people according to body type. <laughs> so I want to say that regardless of body type, the ruling still remains. <laughs> I don't know where that's coming from, bro. Is that coming from medical fact? <laughs> No idea. Yeah, what I'm saying is that you can be <coughs> you can be giant haystacks. <coughs> Actually, no one knows who giant haystacks is. The big show, big show. No, big show. Yeah, that's the that's the your generation. You can be the big show, or you can be you can be me. Yeah. Okay. Super thin versus super big. It doesn't matter. 
يعني the belly button is the belly button of that person. I now get it. I now understand what you're saying. Okay, he's basically saying that a person could be so obese that his stomach is down to his knees and therefore his belly button's at his knees. I don't know, man. I don't know. It is a serious question. When you find that guy, send him to me. I'll look after him, inshallah. <laughs> That's I, I you know it's that could happen. Huh? Yeah, he's already his aura. <laughs> his aura is already covered. That's one of the benefits of being super obese. He literally have to pick up the whole thing and he, you know. So he'd be alright. Where did you take this conversation, Yana? We were up here and then <laughs> that was like the blue hole that I dive down, yeah, and there's nothing and suddenly you're dying. Haji. Uh, we're going to cover that next week, inshallah. We're going to cover that next week, yeah. Regarding the, uh, the hadith about the, the covering of one shoulder, it's one shoulder. What's that all about? So, um, the, we will cover that next week. No, the, the actual text is next week, so it's best that we cover it in the text. Um, how high should the bottom towel be worn in ihram? Again and again, one is unwillingly caught off guard and confronted with so belly buttons and more during Hajj and Umrah. Yeah, that is a problem, obviously. Okay, standard yani issue. Uh, people find it difficult to wear ihram. I don't know. People find it easy. I hate ihram. Yani, ihram is a punishment. Okay, so obviously. The rules of the uh, aura apply, as we just said. So when it comes to the top part, it's not obligatory to cover. Um, as long as the underneath the belly button is covered, yes. And in terms of the bottom part, then as long as the uh, upper part of the thigh is not showing, then that's possible mm-hmm. as well. But obviously, in the ihram, you're not wearing underwear, so you have to be super careful. Okay. And there are some there are some of the salaf, by the way, just for those who are interested, um, that gave fatwa that uh, people could wear some form of undergarment if they did not have long enough ihram to cover their bottom parts, basically, so they could protect their private parts. Yeah, and in more, normally this fatwa is given for people who have a medical condition, a very bad medical condition for males, but someone who is having an aura problem as well. One of my own teachers gave the fatwa, Sheikh uh, Muhammad Salim, he gave the fatwa saying that if a person feared that they could not cover their private parts, because people, some people are really forgetful. And you always tell people, you know, don't cross your legs and, and all this kind of stuff, but, but they forget. They never, you know, they never ever worn clothes like that. You know, if you're Bengali, you, you're, you've got an advantage. Yeah? <laughs> Bengali or your Yemeni or your Somali, okay? Then these guys, they're used to wearing this kind of bakwas, yeah? Okay? Whereas if you're a person who entire life, you're only ever worn trousers and underpants. Okay? 
No, no, but the but Pakistani is at least that, that is covered, isn't it? The shalwara is, is covered, yeah. So if you never ever worn that, and it's not like you're in it for like one hour. In Hajj, you're in it for like, yeah, and it, what is a lifetime, basically? Two days, yeah? How many days? Three, Three days. Well, you know me, I try to make it, yeah. It, it, <laughs> the first second I get out of it, we're out of it, bro. But yeah, it's two, three days, yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's a long time. Um, so, like I said, it's impossible. No, it's not impossible. But you don't need to imagine the concentration factor that needs to be in. Because you're relaxing and you're sitting and you're talking and you're praying and whatever, whatnot. And you forget you're wearing this yani, uh, uh, situation. Okay? I heard that there is a hadith in one of the Musnads affirming the opinion on Isbal. Um, I don't know, to be honest. I can't, I can't say that. Uh, free or not. I don't know who that is. Okay, I think that's that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the first announcement, I want to say that um, those guys who uh, uh, emailed uh, to support the transcribing teams, we still need a few extra people. Okay. So anyone who's watching this um, and uh, can help out with the notes, just a little bit of checking, a little bit of writing here and there, then please email lpnotetakers at gmail.com. You'll see it on the portal, lpnotetakers at gmail.com. That's the first announcement with respect to the class. Are there any more questions, by the way? Right. Um, the other two announcements is that the uh, Umrah uh, that I'll be taking, the dates are confirmed. It's April the 6th until the 16th, and we are going from Manchester. Okay? We are going from London and Manchester, actually. So there, And we will then, the, the people who are in London... Uh, we will basically all join in Frankfurt. We were able to get a flight that basically will take London and Manchester and arrive in Frankfurt at the same time, and then they will then will move from there. And that's uh, on. And uh, yeah, so um, Umrah is April sixth, sixteenth. It's on hajjwithae.com slash Umrah, and the Hajj is now confirmed as well. It is confirmed. It is on August the. 17th I think or the 16th or 17th and it's also on the website all the details are there as well um, and the other announcement is Sheikh Yasser okay I was with him just a few days ago he is bringing his class and I will be here for that as well uh, to make sure that he doesn't say no bakwas yeah because we've got to keep him under manners you know what I'm saying he's bringing a very important class called No Doubt okay and we all need to make sure we represent big time it is a very important class, of course, is dealing with most of the difficult issues that folks are kind of asking about with respect to identity and iman and, you know, all this nonsense that happens out there in life these days. Um, that's February the 11th. 10th, sorry, 10th is a Friday, 11th and 12th. Okay, so it's a single weekend class, BMHC. So it's at BMHC, it's going to be a big gig, Okay. So let's make sure that we're all there for that. Um, and tickets are obviously available everywhere uh, in the normal kind of uh, uh, sources. Now, folks who are listening to this, I can tell you with almost certainty, those who are obviously Liverpool and Brad, uh, Liverpool and other sites, but Bradford and Birmingham, folks, I can tell you that this class will not be taught by Sheikh Yasser in Bradford or in Birmingham anytime 
in the next three, four, five years. As a, and I don't think it will be taught. That's from what I know. Okay, so if you are in these cities or you are in London, because it's definitely not going to come back to London, there's one more possibility, and that is maybe in two years' time it might go to Scotland. That's the only possibility. Um, so if you're in Birmingham or Bradford or anywhere of the rest of the country, then this is the last time that you'll get it in the UK. Okay, in fact, speaking to Sheikh Yasser, I believe that this class will not be taught more than a handful of more times anyway over the next one, two years, because he is about to embark on a huge project. And um, so I just want you to know, anyone who's watching this, if you want to take this class with one of the best Yani renditions of it, uh, of, this, of the subjects therein, then you need to make sure you make that February 10th, 11th, 12th in Manchester. Okay? Anything else? Which conference? Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, um, of? Ajib. So the, the final announcement, you might have seen and heard that we're having a conference uh, which is being organized by a group of folks, okay? Um, Al-Maghrib are involved, Mend are involved, Bayina involved, Yaqeen are involved. It's a joint kind of thing. And it's happening on April the 22nd and April the 23rd. And it's going to be in London, central London, and it's going to be in uh, Yorkshire, which basically... Um, and the reason it's very simple the, the venues are not being mentioned because everyone is out to try and cancel this that's why okay simple as that okay um, it will be somewhere near near around Bradford uh, not far from Bradford okay um, and they're big venues and it will be very busy and there's already been a couple of thousand tickets already gone there are not that many left especially the one up here let me just make that very clear that this one is nearly gone okay because I've just seen they had to reduce the capacity. The speakers, I will be speaking, um, and Omar Suleiman will be there, Yasser Qadi will be there, Norman Ali Khan will be there, Peter Oborn will be speaking, uh, Shanaz Banglawar will be speaking, there's another female scholar as well who will be speaking, um, and uh, Tariq Ramadan is also there, and there's also a few other speakers as well. Um, it is called Losing My Religion. That's me in a corner. Abu Dhar is Abu Dhar is the really naughty guy here. Yeah, you see that? He started singing. Look at that. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, uh, that's what's going to happen. So don't forget that. Now the key I was going to say is that the prices are discounted at the moment and they go up. This will definitely sell out, by the way. So don't. So I'm just making you clear. January the 31st is the deadline for the uh, thingy. For the early bird price, then it goes up. Okay, so just go on to losingmyreligionconference.com. Amazingly original name. Okay, brilliant name. Losingmyreligionconference.com. Yeah, yeah. It is not a class. It is, it is a, a day's worth of lectures or presentations, I should say. Motivational lecture. I'm not motivating anyone. I'm going to come and smack some people down, Yara. I'm not even. I'm not. I'm not even lying. I'm on a smackdown. Religion. What? <laughs> right. Any other? Anything else? No. Zakmulah everybody. Barakallahu fiq. Subhanakallahu bihamdik. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka Allahumma wa atubu ilaik. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.